0: Hey everyone, this week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by G-Technology and FilmTools.com. G-Technology is a leading brand for professional-grade storage solutions for the media and entertainment industries. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has consistently offered reliable, high-performance hard drives. If you're in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out the hottest product offerings from G-Technology. And now, on to the show. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and I discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Gabriel Fleming, ACE. Gabriel began his career in corporate video and transitioned into reality TV with TV shows like Making the Band and America's Next Top Model. He transitioned into scripted features as an assistant editor on the movies Battleship and Lone Survivor then into the editing chair on Deepwater Horizon and Patriot's Day. Most recently, he worked with director Rick Roman Waugh on Angel Has Fallen, and the two of them are currently working on another feature called Greenland. Waugh recently told me that as long as Gabriel is available, he's never going to do another film without him. High praise. So let's get into our discussion about Fleming's career and editing Angel Has Fallen. So tell um, me tell me a little bit about the, so you've worked with uh, I can't remember there's a female director and then Peter Berg those are two of your main ones
1: yeah I worked with um, with Peter Berg um, on a few films and then um, uh, on Kelly Reichert with um, not as an editor but as as a, as a, on her second feature as a location sound recordist and then as an assistant director on her next feature. Um, And then Amber Seeley, who's an indie director. I've worked with her a couple times. And, yeah, I think – and right now I'm I'm doing this. My second film with uh, Rick Romanois, who directed Angel Has Fallen. So we're working right now on a film called Greenland. And there really is a benefit to having worked together before. The first film you do with someone, you're discovering so much about how they work, what they're going to respond to – what you need to do at first, you know, how polished you need to cut to be and how and polished in what way. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier when you start <laughs> that second film with someone. I feel a lot more at ease uh, right now cutting uh, this movie Greenland with Rick, and he feels a lot more at ease with me. Like, we're, you know, I'm, I'm not showing him nearly as much because he just trusts me. And, uh, and I also know that I don't have to worry about him getting certain kinds of coverage because I know he's pretty good at that. And so it's just, it's a lot easier when you're working with someone for the second time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell me about, um, the first time that you worked with him, which was on the movie that we're talking about here, Angel has fallen. What, what were some of those things that you yeah. mentioned? Like, um, how polished or polished in what way that you needed to show him? Cause I know that is a big thing with a lot of directors.
1: I spent um, a long time in the trenches cutting reality television and uh, what the kind of the discipline I got from that was you when you present something for the first time, it, it has to be arable. It has to be something that uh, you know, an audience could watch and, and find entertaining with music, it just has to be done. And that's a habit that I brought to features. So I, I tend to like my editor's cut to be something that could, not quite, but almost go on to uh, the big screen. And so when I do present things to a director, I don't want them to be taken out in any way by uh, you know bumpy edits or bumpy sound cuts. Uh, so. But as you get to know a director, you get to know what's going to bump for them and what you can kind of just skip past. Uh, So with the second film with Rick is that I know that he's not going to get bumped by, you know, visual effects missing, that I can just use text. And uh, I know that I can um, have the sound not be perfect. And so I can just kind of give him the picture because he's a, he's a, a visually oriented guy. So um that's how I you know we there's another benefit of just having worked in some before is just that's the the level of polish that you know you need to get to. Sure and that's, so that's your question I, I'm curious no, you no, started somewhere else. Okay? No 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 that's exactly
0: right. my question yeah. and and that's important right because if you spend a huge amount of time polishing scenes to the nth degree then that kind of limits how much you can experiment right or how much you can try to version or something. It, yes. Yes,
1: yes. I mean, one of the reasons that I do like to polish is I like to have a really good version right out the gate for the director's cut. And I like to have, because I feel like the editor's cut is the time that I get to experiment and do everything that I want to do. One of the things that I do try and do in the editor's cut, I try and make it all of the kind of crazy ideas that I have, I try and put those in the first time. And then we'll scale them back. So it's going out the gate to the director with, I'm not sure this is going to work. Here's a here's a wild way of doing this, but let's have this be the first way you see it, and then we'll we'll not do it, or it'll inspire something else. But that first cut is. I mean, this is for me during production when um, when it's just me in the room cutting. That's like the most precious time to me, because it's where I get to to make every do everything that I want to do and experiment with everything that I want to experiment with. You
0: were saying you know you like
1: during your editor's cut to
0: be able to have that time to experiment that's another place where you have to know the the director right some directors are like, "Yeah, show me something crazy," and some directors are like, "No, I need to see it the way I planned it, and then if you want to show me something different, show it to me." after you show me what I planned?
1: Yeah, I uh, tend to, even if they want to see it the way they saw it, I tend to try and push (laughs) a little bit to try something different. And if for the first screening, and if I know I have the version that I think that they want to see, just right, ready on tap. So show them something, and they'll be like, oh, oh, well, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, and I wanted it to be like this. And I'll say, okay, let's look at this. Boom. Here it is. And most of the time they want to go with how they uh, originally envisioned it. And so that I want to make sure I have. But I also want to, you know, push a little bit. I want to challenge. Because it only happens one time out of ten where that challenge leads somewhere. But that's sometimes the most important piece of the process is when you're discovering something new. And when you're showing the director something that they hadn't thought of. And that they like. So it's just, and to me, it's, it's an important part of the artistic process to subvert expectations and to, uh, you know, bring things along and bring your own, you know, bring my own uh, vision into it, even if I know it's not going to stick. Because I think the editor's role is, is a dual one one is to uh, bring into being the director's vision. And then as a secondary role is to bring in your own vision and see if that meshes, see if that inspires anything. See if uh, if it brings it to a place that the director didn't see themselves and likes better.
0: Yeah, do you think that has something to do with the, the objectivity you're able to bring? Because the director has it in his head and shot it, and he might be even thinking of... What he was envisioning, and not thinking of what actually got on film.
1: Yeah, that, and that's and that's something you uh, is a consistent um, attention with the directors is that they do have something in their head, but then part of the editor's function is to not be based on the initial vision, but be based on what the footage is and what the footage footage is bringing to the table and i try and cloister myself quite a bit from like I, i don't read the script over and over again i'll read the script you know initially before the project and then i'll read just the scene before looking at the footage just to see what that what the idea is and then i try not to look at it again i try to just say okay script is let's not pay attention to that let's pay attention to what the scene did what the actors did in those moments and what was stronger what we need to hit and uh yeah so i try and i try and keep myself in a little in a little bit of a cocoon and uh there's been a lot of times where i've been on set cutting and i really try not to know too much about the set (laughs) or you know where things are because even just simple things like geography if you have been on the set, there may be geographic elements that you understand from having been there that an audience will never know, and it might be confusing to an audience. There's that happens all the time for me, where I'll look at some footage and I'll talk to the director and I'll say like, "Wait a second, where is this? Is this here?" And they'll look at me like, "How can you not know this?" Because they're so, uh, you know, they're so familiar with how the reality is that they get blind to how the audience is going to perceive
0: it. Absolutely. The yeah, the footage alone. I, I've yeah. completely run into that uh, instance myself. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of other editors talk about the fact that you don't want to be on set to know, you know, oh, that jib shot took, you know, six hours to set up, and now I'm not going to, but I'm not going to use it. <laughs> but if you yeah, were there, yeah, you might yeah. go, "Oh, yeah, I, I'm gonna. I gotta use that gym shot. I saw how much work they put into it."
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've had, to, I've been lucky enough to work with directors who are not precious about uh, that kind of stuff, about how long a shot took to get, and are willing to just throw things out. That's I've been, you know, Rick. Rick is that way. Peter Berg is that way. They're they're both not precious about anything with shots at. That's great. Uh, one of your
0: other uh, relationships that I wanted to just talk about, because I think for um, younger editors, they might be interested in kind of the way that you were able mm-hmm. to move up or, or whatever. Um, I talked. Mm-hmm. To, you've worked with Colby Parker a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. What was your first project together? How long have you guys uh, been working together?
1: Well, we, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get asked a lot about how, how one moves up and how one gets into uh, you know, scripted features. And I came at my career path from a different way than a lot of people. So I, right out of college, uh, I studied film at UC Santa Cruz. And right out of college, I got a job as an intern and then an apprentice editor on a, a big, big feature. This was 1996. Uh, called Desperate Measures, and um, I was in a you know a cutting room and right away, and I worked in that for a year. and And what I saw, the assistants uh, weren't getting a lot of opportunity to cut, and there was so much time spent on just the you know organization and mechanics that is mostly what assistants do. That there was just no time in one's life to edit. So I decided to leave the industry and, uh, or at least leave Hollywood. Because I wanted to just start cutting right away in the fastest way that I could, so what I did is I, I went back to the Bay Area, which is where I grew up, and I started working uh, in corporate videos. You know, my what I wanted to do was leave the glory, <laughs> get as far away from the glory of Hollywood as I could, just so that I could start cutting. And I was I was editing um, as a full time career very early on you know my early 20s just doing kind of not the most impressive uh corporate videos in the bay area and then i started just taking that experience and moving into moving closer and closer to hollywood so i went from doing corporate video to uh, and then i started cutting reality television in la and then i did that for uh, a little bit and then i uh you know, I knew I wanted to get into the scripted. i would always also been doing indie film. Colby uh, Parker was editing the pilot of Teen Wolf, which was one of MTV's first scripted series. And he needed a music editor. And the post super was a reality post super who I know, uh, Blaine Williams, who I've been working with for years. And he said, huh, well, you know, a lot of our reality editors can music so I bet Gabe can do this so I came in and worked as a music editor on the pilot for Team Wolf for a week just one week and that's how Colby and I met and then he because I had been music editing for so many years as a reality editor he said hey would you be interested in coming and helping me work on this movie called Battleship that's going to be done in a little bit and so that was my transition i didn't know colby before that um and i came and helped them out on battleship and you know was just able to take all of the years of editing that i had been doing um in various formats because i was coming i came to battleship as an assistant editor with 15 years of full-time editing and uh and then i was able to help out with whatever you know little bits of editing needed to be done in that film and then after that it was just i became uh, indispensable <laughs> for uh, you know for that, that team and and that was my transition in so i think i think what it was for me was you know they always say that um, moving up is opportunity plus preparation yep so what I had done was I had done an incredible amount of preparation. Like I, when I was moving into these positions that I've, I've been lucky enough to get, they were luck. It was complete luck. But I had that, you know, those years under my belt of cutting, even if it was cutting garbage, it's still cutting. I like to think that uh, editing is largely a um, quality agnostic skill. Like you uh, can be, it's, you don't need to be working on the best material to learn the, the really essential basic uh, skills of editing. So I always tell people just cut, like anybody who's starting out. Just do whatever you can to cut and get the hours in. It's like playing an instrument. It's not like riding a bike. It's like playing an instrument. You've got to practice, 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 practice. That's exactly my advice to people,
0: and, and, and I make that instrument analogy all the time. You wouldn't expect that you could pick up a violin and play brilliantly the first time. You know that you've got to practice and practice and practice, and that's the only way to get good.
1: Yeah, and it feels like, unfortunately, the way the assistant editing path has developed uh, once you know linear came along, uh, that there's just not that much of an opportunity to practice in that environment, especially in features. And, uh, you know, it's, I, the analogy I make is it's, it's better to be playing piano in a crappy bar down the street than helping out with the piano strings and the symphony. Yeah. Turning pages for the
0: piano player. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. The, the other, somebody was just emailing me about, oh, I'm a reality editor and I want to move into features. What can I do? And I really didn't, uh, having never been a reality editor myself, I really didn't have a lot of advice. And they were willing to become an assistant editor. And I said, it's really a very different skill being an assistant editor and being <laughs> an editor. Did you find that there were things you needed to learn kind of on the fly about being an assistant?
1: Yeah, it it is very much a different skill, and I was lucky enough to have other assistants around me that um, you know knew what they were doing (laughs) when I made that transition. So uh, I wasn't, you know, I was a second assistant. I wasn't really uh, um, in charge of the entire operation, which is a a monumental um, task and requires a lot of experience from assistants. So yeah. Unfortunately, it's so much about luck, and it's so much about who you know um, to to get into that position. And, and you know, I, I didn't really know that many people in the world. I, I still don't know that many people in the in the uh, feature filmmaking world. And um, I, I get asked that question all the time by reality editors um, and by assistants in scripted television, and I never have a good answer. Unfortunately. It's because there is no one path everybody's path is different the only thing I can say is when you get that opportunity when you get that moment of luck that you're ready to grab it because that's something I do see with a lot of people is they don't they're not ready to grab it for whatever psychological reason or maybe a financial reason uh, that they can't take that risky jump it's scary uh but you got <laughs> you gotta do something scary if you want to move into the place you want to work
0: yeah absolutely I mean my my background is uh, not quite reality but close enough and you know I worked for the Oprah <laughs> Winfrey show for a decade and That'll wow um, I did trailers for a while and there were some studio people that uh, you know, I, I got a hold of a trail movie once, a rough cut of a movie, which is often how you get trailers. You're looking at an early rough cut. Yeah. I'm like, this movie is terrible, but I think that it could be fixed with editing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But, you know, having that, having a studio executive that, you know, believed in me and I'd done work for and having someone else say, oh, uh, you know, I can't be on this film anymore, but, uh, there's this guy, I know he's never cut features, but I think that he would be great. That's, that's exactly what you're talking about is being prepared. Like me at that point, I'd been an editor for 20 years, but I'd never cut a feature. So, um, just being ready for that opportunity I think is a, is a huge thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, That seems to be the consistent story. It's always some random lucky moment. And I mean, I I found that you get a certain number of those in your career. It's not necessarily one. You get maybe five over your <laughs> forty years of working. And uh, and some of them you got to know what not to take because sometimes the the more prestigious areas are not what you want to do. And uh, and it's important to recognize the difference between. What you think you're supposed to want to do, and what you actually sure. want to do. Sure, you don't want to because you, you yeah. don't want
0: to take that. You don't want to take the next Star Wars movie, and then realize halfway through it that you are not prepared to edit the next Star
1: Wars movie. Exactly, or didn't want to do it, or the next Marvel movie. You know, right. you hear stories um, about uh, Marvel, and it's it's it sounds like it's a lot of work. <laughs> So if you're going to do something like that, you gotta you gotta know that you're going to be dedicating a lot of your life to that that film that year, yeah. and you gotta be cognizant of that decision. And that's not for everybody. Yep.
0: Let's talk a little about actually making this movie. Uh, what was the schedule for mm-hmm. this particular movie? When did when did uh, well, production start? And when did you get into editing after production?
1: So we let's see. We shot in. Um, February through, like end of February through early May or June. Um, I think production was about 10 or 12 weeks. And it was in London and uh, Bulgaria. And editorial was in London. And then uh, the director lives in Austin. So we did the director's cut in Austin for uh, what ended up being about. 12 weeks just because of various extensions and uh yeah i mean it was it was pretty standard (laughs) process i mean rick is a is a is a thorough director and it wasn't there were no big bumps along the road in production there were no big bumps along the road in uh in our process in putting the film together we had you know some the usual visual effects delays and and all of that but uh but it was pretty smooth. We, I think, we had a really good film six weeks into the director's cut, mm. so,
0: so like 12, which is great. Because then after that,
1: you're just refining,
0: right? So you spent twelve, about ten or twelve weeks in London, and then a, and about another twelve
1: weeks in Austin. Yeah, about that. And then came back to I came back to London for you know post post after the director's cut when we're doing little tweaks for the producers and the mix and color and all of that and i was there for another probably three months after after the director's cut um and as the visual effects come in all that um yeah but it was generally pretty smooth it was generally pretty smooth and and you know working with rick is great he's a director who um during the director's cut is in the room 10 hours a day uh you know sitting right with me and it's is that's different directors, a different. That was the first time where I had a director who was really there the whole time. He's very um, specific about what he wants and uh, and likes to be there for every moment. So it was, uh, it's you know not a lot of breaks <laughs> <laughs> that way for me. Not not a lot of you know looking at Facebook <laughs> or any of that. Um, uh, but it was a good experience.
0: That's awesome uh and austin's
1: lovely so i'm sure you enjoyed austin yeah so we're going back um i mean i'm going back to austin for the director's cut of this new film in two weeks and living in the same apartment and it's a wonderful city it's it's such a great place to just be in for two months um because it's uh you know the barbecue and the tacos alone oh yeah 100 (laughs) percent fantastic Yeah. yeah
0: Uh, when you are – let's talk about your approach. When you um, are in dailies and you you get a fresh batch of footage into a bin and you're looking at a blank yeah. timeline, what do you do?
1: I tend to uh, uh, come at it from select. So I'll watch everything, I'll pull selects, and then I will just narrow down from there, narrow down, narrow down, narrow down. It's a, a very time-consuming process. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm indecisive. <laughs> so I like to, uh, I, I like to, I, I wait to actually cut a scene together until I'm really, really, really familiar with the footage, which I think is different from a lot of people. Um, but for me, the, the select process takes about five times as long as the actual editing. Once I've narrow down what i'm liking it just comes together like that um but uh are you you starting that select
0: process from from like a chem roll, where you just put all of every single take in a big giant timeline or are you calling up individual shots and takes from a bin and finding what you like and cutting
1: it into a timeline it depends. So, if it's a scene where I know that it's a straight-up dialogue scene, and I know there's going to be cutting, uh, that it's going to be a little bit of standard cutting, I might have, um, I might myself or have an assistant break it down into a line string, where you know it's it's different performances next to each other, um, but it, keeping in mind that when you cut from that as a as a uh, first step, it has the uh, pro cut bias. Yep. So I, it just causes you to cut more. And um, so what I'll usually do after, if I cut a scene from that in the beginning, I will really try and go through the footage again and find ways to minimize the cutting or find any long chunks that would have worked on their own. Um, but I tend to do that only with scenes where I know it's going to be kind of a little bit of back and forth and there is going to be cutting. But then if it's a scene that's a little bit more um, documentary style, which is a lot of what I end up doing, a lot of what I end up cutting, then I'll try and go through and I'll find flows that work and uh, find moments that are a little off. That's what I'm always looking for is, is something that's not quite perfect but it's not so imperfect that it takes you out. I'm always looking for, like, the camera gets bumped in just a little way, or, you know, it kind of goes off, you know, because they're famous, just a little bit in the weirdest way that you're not gonna be taken out, but it feels natural. So I'm always looking for that, and and I will kind of cling to those bits, and I'll try and cut a scene around those. What usually happens is those moments fall out because they're not something about them doesn't work or the performance isn't quite the right thing. So they'll, they'll fall away. But at least if I start from that point, then I know that I'll have those little nuggets and I'll have those little moments of slightly off kilter that will, um, you know, root the scene in reality, (laughs) which is what I try and do is to just try and bring it, you know, try and get that little feeling of, Um, this might've been a documentary, (laughs) no matter what it is. I try and get that little, just that little feeling.
0: Oh, I want to go back to that line string idea because this is something I've explained with a couple of other people. That is the danger of that line string. So if, if, if you're reading this or listening to this and you don't understand a lot of times you'll take whatever, whatever the first line is, you know, Hey Gabriel, it's Steve. You take that line and in every single take and in every single uh, setup, you take just that one line and you put it into a a sequence back-to-back-to-backs to to decide which one you like best and then go to the next line and the next line. But because of that, you're right. It tends to make you not think, oh, I should stay on the person who's speaking after he says, hey, Gabriel, it's Steve. But you don't think about yeah. it because you've already edited it in the selects in the line cut. You've already there's a cut there, exactly. the Yeah, Yes, so you don't tend to yeah. leave that yeah. keep playing. Yeah, that's a big danger. Yeah, so and I, I like editing that I, way, but it is a what, big danger.
1: It's a danger. I, one one thing is I never have individual lines next to each other. It's always an exchange of at least four. So it'll be character A will say one line, character B will say one line character a will say another line and then back and forth so i'll never divide it into chunks smaller than that because uh you just can't if you just see them individually then you're not seeing you're so seeing them in in tiny little chunks that you'll just get lost you know you'll you can't see the forest for the trees um so uh i i'll never go down that small
0: um Yep. And I I do the same thing. I tend to do it based on, sometimes based on blocking. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm never going to be able to cut to this shot again because they move to a different part of the room. So, you know, I'll break things down into like maybe break an entire scene that's 90 seconds long. I'll break it into five pieces or six pieces. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, also I try and take the cut points where I know there's most likely going to be a cut. Yeah, so usually you're going to cut to somebody's face to see a reaction to a specific line. So okay, I know that I'm going to break my line strings down in that format. So it's this. It's all in an effort to um, kind of remove the threat of <laughs> of overcutting. Although you can never do that. You know, if you start that way, you're always going to have a bias towards cutting. But try to. Just be aware of that through the whole process. And I also find that line strings are extremely useful for action. So breaking down a scene when, say, it's like a a fist fight, I will take just the same four swings, you know, swing, punch, block, punch, swing. I'll take that chunk from every camera and just put them all next to each other. And I won't necessarily use that as the basis of cutting, but it, became, it becomes extremely useful after it's starting to come together to say, oh, this swing doesn't really make sense. Let me see if this one, okay, this, this swing from this camera angle hits it a little bit better. That, to me, has, makes action sequences come together very naturally and smoothly. When you break it down into its component parts, Because action sequences are really just very fast storytelling, you know, like every, it's goal, obstacle, goal, obstacle in half a second, Yep. punch, block.
0: And those line strings I also find are good for the director because, you know, you come up with a classic, is that the best take? And you can easily run through and go, here are your choices. Yeah, yeah, that accelerates the process a lot uh, later on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, So I was gonna. The other question I had, which I think we've already answered, is: Do you have a special way or method of watching dailies? Is there anything? You're just always pulling selects when you're watching dailies.
1: Um, yeah, I'm just. You know, I usually have my feet up on the desk, and I'm just watching watching the dailies, pulling selects. <laughs> I can never. I wish I hear there's some people who can watch a multicam daily. You know, watch two cameras at once. I just, I just can't do that. <laughs> I just can't. I need to see the full frame to really understand every nuance, nuance, of, nuance of a shot.
0: Um, and do you? But you do. Do you do group
1: your clips? Oh yeah. I. It's so rare that I've ever worked in a project where they're shooting single camera. There's always two cameras going, and it's useful to be able to toggle through them. And I, I don't I don't use the groups that much, but they do need to be groups because there's there's just a lot of use that comes out of that. Sure. Um, yeah.
0: So this is a continuing story of, of this character, correct?
1: hmm um, Yeah, Were you able is.
0: to use prior scores, or what did you use for Temp?
1: Well, a lot of what uh, Rick was trying to do with this film was to reestablish the style. So, uh, I don't know if you've seen the first two, um, I saw but they're, the they I think, which one I saw the first one, the first one. Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty, um, uh, popcorn, uh, version of, of this type of movie. And what Rick wanted to do is he wanted to make it, uh, gritty and, uh, uh, more emotional and more character based. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of trying to not use a lot of the style that had been used in the first two movies. So in terms of score, no, uh, we, we were trying to push as far away from that as possible. We were temping, you know, a lot with, um, uh, United 93 was our our, ended up being our main temp track because we were trying to get just as much of a documentary feel as we could and uh, as much restraint with the score. And so we had a lot of, you know, 93, we had a lot of Sicario, which everybody's stuck with these days. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and then also Prisoners uh, from the same composer. Great, great. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful score. Um, So yeah, that's, that's where we went. And the, the, the final score, David Buckley, our composer, who's just a, such an amazing composer, um, it, it's, it started skewing a l- little bit more towards, like it's not like a cardio-style score at all. But when we had that kind of res- that restrained, restricted, you know, stripped-back starting point, it, it was a really good core to go from for what, it, what became the movie and the score. So I think when you see it, it really feels a lot different than um than the first two films and we had in the, the preview audiences we had a lot of fans of the first two films and they loved it you know they we were wondering if they were going to be off put by how different it was mm-hmm. uh stylistically but they just they loved the difference and we had a lot of the fans just say like oh this is the best one of the three
0: and they loved the first two so oh, that's great um it's so interesting yeah. the temps that you pick because i you know, you go through this, I've done the same thing where I'm like, okay, I'm doing this movie about, you know, a ghost. So how, what other ghost movies can I, you know, do I pull score from United 93 is not one that I would, you know, I would have guessed, like, if I had to like, look at that movie and go, what scores? I would go, Oh yeah, I got to grab Sicario, you know, the prisoners would be great. United 93 would not have been one that I had would have thought of but that's a-
1: honestly it surprised me too it, it we but we started gravitating towards it because we wanted to make the particularly the dialogue scenes feel as urgent and as documentary like as we could and united 93 has this beautiful restrained score uh because it was being very um you know this subject matter was acquired a light touch yeah. So that ended up being what we were trying to kind of bring into this film was that that level of uh, you know it's several several levels removed to get that kind of gravitas onto what is essentially a um, a popcorn film, but part of the idea just artistically was to try and imbue that uh, that feeling to heighten the, uh, the tension of uh, the film that we were making.
0: When you, I don't know how you really came about getting this gig, did you watch the other movies either before your interview or since
1: your interview? Uh, I watched uh, London's Fallen before the interview and then after I watched London. Um, but yeah, I, I basically um, yeah, I had, uh, had Patriots say which was, you know, a real life, um, along with Colby Parker, and uh, which was a real life story about a, a terrorist attack in, in Boston, and that was Rick wanted that feel, like he wanted to bring that that tone and feel to this film. So that's he just <laughs> that was it. He said, okay, I want that, I want that editor, and uh, and Colby was available, so <laughs> <laughs> I like to say that. Yeah, that's um, what, that... But, and that's uh, yeah. a lot of how
0: people get get gigs. I mean, I definitely have landed jobs because somebody had watched another movie that I'd caught and said, yeah, we called you because
1: of this other movie. Exactly, yeah. That's how I think one gets kind of typecast yeah. in a role. Is it just, if when people like your work, then they keep wanting to replicate the same thing. And, you know, it's uh, I think the challenge to get out of that uh, that system um but uh yeah i, I I'm, I'm okay with it for now <laughs> yeah, probably
0: i can understand that but you uh i'm assuming because i haven't seen any of those other films that you did with uh, the female director that you mentioned um yeah
1: with with uh kelly Riker. i didn't cut those uh, no not kelly a uh, the other one. Oh, amber seeley amber seeley yes yeah so i'm assuming so those I are mean, a little bit different they are different. There's a commonality, though, there. And like Amber's uh, film, A Plus D, which I cut, was uh, uh, very documentary-based. It was about a, a couple going through a breakup and it was entirely shot in one apart And, and it was, you know, video. And, and so it's, it's all along the same tone, um, which is, uh, you know, I, I've made, I've written and directed a couple of features, um, and the first feature I did was, uh, in the end of like 1999 and it was right before the mumblecore movement. Oh yeah. So, so I was working sorry. with digital yeah. video. So it was the very beginning of digital video, really, uh, interested in, in French new wave at the time, particularly Godard and just finished cinema verite. So I was, uh, you know that was my approach was to just start shooting <laughs> my friends and, <laughs> and uh, making some projects that way. So I was doing a lot of documentary and Veritas style stuff. And uh, that, that ended up translating into a lot of what I ended up editing because Peter Burke that's his style as well. And, you know, Friday Night Lights is a lot along those lines. So when I came in to, uh, to work, with him, you know, first through Colby, it just all, it all fit together. And uh, when I remember one of my first interviews with Pete, he watched the trailer for my second feature, which is a lot the same style. And he said, okay, <laughs> yep, let's do this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I, feel I feel like I, like I, I maybe get typecast in that way, that, uh, in terms of just doing Ferrette documentary style. And sometimes I just, I would love to do like a a film one day where the cameras are all on tripods, (laughs) maybe a musical or something. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, it it is interesting, the typecasting that goes on. Do you think there's a way to, is there a way to fight that, that you, I don't know, you go off and you do a film that's maybe not quite as big, like you're like, oh, I could do the... I could do the fourth one of these movies, or I could go do a little independent. That's what I, right, a
1: project I want to do. Well, I did. I did last uh, uh, two years ago. I did a film called Blind Spotting, which was pretty different, and that was a you know kind of dark comedy. And when I jumped onto it, it turned out you know we got picked up by Lionsgate and um, and got national distribution. But at the time when I started, it, we just I thought it was going to be a fun little indie project to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think it's about choices. You know, you get offered movies and you get offered interviews and it depends where you are in that moment. If you, you know, sometimes, and I haven't been in this situation, but I know sometimes you, you would just really need a job. So you'll do what, what comes up. Um, but then other times you, once again, it's like, it's about taking risks. It's about turning things down. And saying, I want to do something more like this. I want to expand my uh, my palette. And that can be scary sometimes. But, uh, yeah, it's all about what projects you choose to take if you're lucky enough to get offered multiple projects.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned directing. And I even think I saw a cinematographer in there and, and writer for sure. Yeah. What... What do any of those other jobs in the industry, the writing, the directing, or the cinematography, what do those bring to your editing? Because I don't think you've actually gone the other way. Or what does your editing bring to those other yeah. core skills?
1: I always feel like I'm an editor first, even in my directing and writing. I, I think in terms of cuts. And I think in terms of how shots are going to work together and how the flow is going to be, how the music is going to work with it. Um, so it's all holistic to me. Like I, I, I don't, I think of it as filmmaking and there's just different tasks within it. And I think as an editor, I even, I bring a, a, a director's attitude <laughs> maybe where I kind of think of a scene, when I'm going into a scene, I like to find something about it that excites me. And that, oh, I can do this to the scene. Like, I can bring this to the scene. Or this, this uh, if I do this in the scene, I'm going to be satisfying this creative expression of my, my own. Um, so it's hard for me to know, like, what what is directing, what is writing, what is editing, because it's all one piece. But I do know that I, I get I bring a um, a certain creative responsibility to things that I'm working on um, because of my background of of directing and because of my background honestly in reality television because in reality television the editor is the one responsible for everything. You know, you're the last you're the last uh, stop. So you just, you need to deliver. <laughs> you need to make it your own. You need to deliver. And so that's something that I feel like that I, I just, that's part of my attitude. that's built in from my experience uh, holistically. Do
0: you think one of the other uh, things that you did, as you mentioned, was writing and, or even yeah. your, your reality show, the reality TV work um, there's there's that process of cutting the scene together, but then once you once you start assembling the entire movie, there's the larger decisions that have to happen on a kind of a macro scale of yeah of the story. Talk to me about how you're writing or or how those things, uh, how you're approaching those larger choices instead of like the internal scene cut to cut scene stuff.
1: Right. I mean, uh, there is so much writing that happens in the editing process that has to do with uh, structural, the structural integrity and the, and the structural flow and, um, and also the emotional flow of how the tone of one scene moves into the next. And particularly when you're working on a film when you've got multi-storylines that are overlapping and overleaving uh how that gets put together um is extremely important and so much of that happens in the editing process i mean i think i was surprised by that when i started coming into features was how much could be <laughs> changed <laughs> what's what was that different than the script yeah really different from the script and um Responsibility, I think, was is one that I enjoy. Like, okay, we're gonna, we're we're not gonna just say, oh, this is what the script was. We gotta, we gotta make this better. <laughs> you know, we gotta make this right. And um, I'm also surprised how much kind of dialogue writing I end up doing <laughs> in the editing process with ADR and with just little, uh, little uh, how to get one piece of information across extremely efficiently. Like you need the word the wording that needs to go into ADR is so precise <laughs> especially when it's something that you maybe need to overlap on some an actor's lips moving and it's not what they were saying like you need to find the right tone of oh my god I spent a lot of time doing that but yeah I think that the a uh, writing background has been extremely helpful with just knowing how the structure works knowing how story flow works and
0: knowing when you can break the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you find that most of what, when you realize, oh, this isn't working, that's not really at the scene level, that it's more at the larger structural reels and total film? That's when you realize something's not working? Or are you feeling those things sometimes inside of a scene? Oh,
1: yeah, I, I think it's both. Um, do you? Yeah. Usually in the earlier version of an in, in earlier cut, you're leaving the scenes long, you're leaving them without all of their content or most of their content. And just the length of the scene can have a huge effect on the story as a whole. Like you can you can have a scene you, you cut four lines out of and suddenly it changes how a scene, you know, ten minutes later behaves because you didn't kind of get slowed down in that earlier section. And uh, the flow is, finding a flow is such a magical alchemy. <laughs> it's, it's hard to really um, say what guidelines there are, what rules, because you discover that just upon, you can take out a couple lines from something and completely affect the film as a whole. Uh, not from a logical standpoint, but just from an emotional flow. And finding that is really thrilling, especially when it happens towards the end of the process, because you'll have a film that's like, oh, it's just a little too bulky, something's just a little off, and then right towards the end, you'll find something you never thought of. Like just, oh, let's change this line to this, or "Let's let's just move this scene, like right half of this scene, right over here and then suddenly everything will just click into place and it's wonderful when it happens
0: yep um, yeah. uh, da, da, da. so uh, let's let's wrap things up with just one uh, you, you mentioned action and you've done a ton of action movies or, or several at least um, yeah is yeah. there a key to it you mentioned kind of action is just fast storytelling which
1: I, which I love yeah, the idea yeah of. I mean I think uh, uh, action scenes, to me, are in a way the purest form of cinema. You're not dealing with dialogue necessarily. You're not dealing with uh, uh, a lot of elements that we, you know, borrow from other arts like like playwriting and and um, you know painting and photography. This is actual action is movement and pacing. And, uh, uh, and, and emotion. And I, every action scene, I think, needs um, three things that I think often get forgotten about. It's story, and emotion, and then cool. So story is... Action scenes are really just fast story in that the character has an objective, and there's an obstacle in front of them. So say it's the character needs to get to that door, <laughs> but there's someone in the way who's going to fight them, so they need to fight their way past uh, that character. And what often gets forgotten is, well, no, the, the character really just needs to get to that door. <laughs> they don't need to fight for fight's sake. They just need to get to the door. So that's whenever I would put an action scene, I try and keep that in mind and looking for, like, okay, what are they trying to do? And and we're keeping that there at every moment. And uh, so I'm really always looking for that in the footage is, is like, how do we keep this on track? How do we keep the line going towards, you know, the character needs to get to that door? Um, Then the other thing is emotion and that is that action is very emotional. It's a high-stress situation that we're putting these humans in and every punch doesn't hurt unless you see someone's face in pain you really need to get the uh the emotional through line of every scene and that that's where you get the tension and that's where you get uh just that like adrenaline that you get in an action scene is from watching people in pain or struggling and seeing that emotional story. Um, And uh, which is something that often, you know, in in kind of, I've seen this in TV a lot where, you know, you get so obsessed with the stunts and all that you forget to get people's faces and to see what they're going through and to see the pain on their face and see their their struggle. Um, And then the last, the last, piece of uh, of action that is the cool factor right like you need to have something about it that's just cool and i think that's something that people um always remember and, and that's that usually is the starting point for people for action scenes and when they're shooting them often is like what's that cool thing but it's gotta be there but it's it's always in service to story and the emotion to me you but once
0: know, you get those it's
1: first two. Yeah, it's, you know,
0: it's it's simple. The emotion thing is interesting because I was thinking, you know, as you were describing those things, I was thinking of like the Jason Bourne movies. And what happens, I think, and maybe the screenwriters or the directors realize this too, is you've got like this consummate professional that's not gonna ever show any emotion, Jason Bourne, but he always yeah. is with, you know. The, the damsel or the other, you know, or, you know, in the uh, diehard movies, you know, Bruce Willis, he doesn't show any emotion, but it's the guy that's with him, you know, that you can get, oh, my Christ. gosh, we're going, you know, you're driving right. a car, you know, the wrong way down the street. And those are the people that yeah. you get the emotion from. A lot yeah. of
1: times, and, but you know, but Matt David gives it like that's something about those films that's pretty good. Is that is that they're very high on the cool factor. Yep. You know, punch 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 punch, punch yeah. block 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 um, is really impressive. But Mac Damon is in there suffering, like yes. you see him struggling, and that's I think well, a big part of those films is that they work so well because you have him in there as this core. And it doesn't have to be a lot, you know, but it's, uh, it's something I think, like, Harrison Ford is... Yeah, he's great at it. ...amazing at suffering. <laughs> yeah. The Air Force One You know, movies. and showing fear. Yeah, yeah. and that's the, what makes the other him so is, special, in a way, I, is that you fear yeah. for him. Yeah.
0: Atomic Blonde is another one. Is the, You know, you feel her getting hit and kicked and beaten mm-hmm. to the pulp. She's, and yeah. That movie is one that you really... You feel the pain of the
1: character in the fight. Yeah, yeah. I do this thing too where I will often with fightings I'll I'll do an efforts pass. Um, myself, you know, efforts is like the oh, 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 you know, that kind of sounds. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll do a pass where I really just try and amp it up and I'll act it out in a way that just I try and add as much pain as I can. <laughs> And make as much vulnerability as I can as a temp track, and then we'll bring the actor in eventually um, to uh, to record the real thing. But like, just to get them to like sound hurt, because that helps so much. That's something a lot of
0: people might not realize is that a lot of times the production sound for those action scenes is useless.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's often pretty good, but they're concentrating so much on. Getting the choreography of the of the fight, that it's hard to bring in the performance at the same time. Like certain actors who are more uh, like Gerard Butler's been doing this for a while, this kind of stuff. So he's really good at getting in the performance while he's doing the stunts. Um, but yeah, it's good to amp it up later with um, with some good efforts and some good emotion in the efforts. It adds just a little bit extra. It's interesting that
0: you're ADRing those kind of yourself. Like a, yeah. microphone, a microphone in the edit suite? Is that it?
1: iPhone, iPhone. Your I iPhone. just kind of do that. <laughs> yeah. Then I, I get on the floor and I like beat myself up and I just roll around and I try and sound as pathetic as possible. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. get that in there as a base and then just to kind of, you know. Say so
0: so like, hey, hey, no, let's sound let's sound vulnerable here. Yeah, I did. Um, Sometimes it stays <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah, I've had it stay in too. I, we did. I cut a movie called Courageous, and there's a big fight scene in that. And the the producer and I went out uh, outside in the grass outside the edit suite, and with my eight, uh-huh. you know, my H four N zoom, you know, <laughs> uh, and recorded yeah. punches and grunts and rolling around and cloth sounds and whatever we could do before the professionals come in and do it.
1: And often i found that the professionals, you have to really encourage them to not sound tough, to, to sound vulnerable because there's a lot of macho in fight scenes. And the, the more vulnerable your stars sound, the more tension there is, the nice. more emotional it is. That's super interesting. Well, I've kept you for an hour,
0: and uh, that is a great little uh, tidbit nugget to go out on. I want to thank you so much for your time and the generosity of uh, of chatting with me. Uh, chatting with me. Uh, good luck on the, your Thank you so on. much. It fun. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out provideocoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Gabriel Fleming, A.C.E. I'm Steve Hulfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.